continue to try to admit people as they come up. But anyway, I want to say welcome. So um, today is a day of talking about the trial, but but really the trial just as a microcosm of how you deal with not only issues in litigation, but how you deal with emotions and how you would deal with approach and how you get back on the horse, how you deal with with things that you wanted to go one way and they didn't, things that did go your way and how you feel about that. And the reason I wanna talk about it is because I know as someone who's tried, hell, probably a hundred jury trials, the ups and downs that come, I've, uh, the, the exhaustion, the elation, the defeat, the anger, the frustration, um, these are things that we all have to deal with and how you deal with them and how you approach them and how you approach them and deal with them over time really will set everyone here apart as to how your reputation and how your career progresses. And um, it really is a, an anomaly that there's some golden set of small group of trial lawyers out there that seem to get all the great cases, get all the great verdicts, seem to have no problems, seem to have everyone listen to them. And that really is not true at all. It really isn't. And there are so many things that Dustin and I talked about that you can do that don't require a legal education that make you a better trial lawyer. And I want to talk about some of those things as well. Um, but before I get into it, I wanted to see, we haven't seen each other for a little while. Does anybody want to raise something, talk about something before we get into it? Any comments? I appreciate all the, the congratulations, but, um, but uh, anything? Yeah, Mike, can we can we have a day where we talk about these documentaries that have come out about uh, Girardi and uh, some of these uh, warning signs that were missed by the bar? Because I, I, I think it really should be discussed because, you know, there can be someone who can become successful and then later fuck up their whole life by doing some stupid ass shit. That's a great idea. And um, I haven't seen it yet, but it's on our list this weekend. We're watching it this weekend. But I don't know if you guys know this, but this is not the first time this has happened. I mean, even in just in the Cala community for the last, what, 10 years, maybe 12 years now, there's been at least four, five falls from grace where this is a very common thing. And again, it just goes along with don't believe everything you see. And many times the actions speak louder than words. And so you got to look at whatever. And I'm not being critical about anybody, although, you know, actions speak for themselves, but that's a great idea. That's a great idea. And maybe that's what, that will be um, what we do next time. Anything else before we get going? All right. Let's just talk about the setup for this case. And then I want to tell you about just a general thing, and then we'll talk about issues, okay? So um, Dustin Thordeson and I uh, from Alder Law um, have been litigating this case. It was an auto accident case where a driver hit our very older client's 
at a very high rate of speed. He was in a car salesman uniform coming from the dealership in a car dealership car. Ultimately was the black box showed he was driving in a 45 mile an hour zone at 99 miles an hour being criminally charged, did not testify in court, pleading the fifth and the dealership was claiming he was not in the course and scope and he did not have permission to take the car. So they were denying all liability, et cetera, et cetera. Um, we come up to trial. We have evidence we of false statements under oath, hidden evidence, et cetera, et cetera, which came out in trial. Um, and then the big important thing was we had pre-settled before trial $2 million. Right. And so the first thing I want to say is, you know, I use this in mediation all the time, as I say, whenever, you know, it's a clear liability and the defense is offering what my worst case scenario is if I tried the case. Right. As I say, you know, if you're playing baseball and every time you come up, I say, I'm guaranteeing that you'll hit no less than a double. Then what are you going to do every time you come up to bat? If your worst case scenario is you get a double, then you swing for the fences every single time, right? Every time. Because the only way you get a home run is when you swing for a home run. And so when we approached this trial, we decided to ask for a whole bunch of money and take that big swing. In retrospect, that probably potentially contributed to the lower number that we got. Had we gone down and asked for a smaller number that was a little bit more, probably more likely that we got that. But we made a decision that given what we already had and our client, we would have been happy with that. We decided to take a bigger swing. So that's how we came into the case. Okay. Ultimately, what happened was we had an, uh, an elderly man and woman that had past and future medical bills past and future pain and suffering, some past and future loss of consortium. And in addition to the two, we got a million, another 1.7 million. So that's the facts, okay? Now those facts are the facts. How we interpret them and how we think about them means everything in whether we get back on the horse happily or unhappily, whether we get back on the horse at all, how we feel about ourselves, how we feel about you know, our approach. So I wanted to say that because this is gonna to happen to you guys every single case, every single trial, every single thing, right? In every trial, you're gonna go into it and you're gonna say, how will this make me look? It's look, ultimately this is about the clients, of course, but let's, let's not kid ourselves that we don't wanna look like losers, right? We don't want to, I want you guys to go, God damn, Alder just and Dustin just got a $50 billion verdict. Tell me that I'm lying, right? This is what reality is. Now, I have learned after 53 and a half good and bad hard earned years that you can't cheat yourself. And if you try to say, oh, that's not me, I would never, you know, trial lawyers don't think of themselves. You're full of shit, right? But it's okay. That is a part of life.
And as Dustin and I were talking this morning, a lot of things came up with emotions that we want to talk about that I think we should talk about. And Corinne, I'd love your advice. But we asked Corinne, who her um, and her husband came to the focus groups. They were so involved. They were so interested that I asked Corinne to come in as co-counsel. She wound up taking one of the, one of the plaintiffs on direct. She now has her first seven-figure verdict in her first trial. And it was a wonderful experience, I, I think, for you. And um, so happy that you were. But I, you know how I talk about enthusiasm and proactivity is what people look for, like me. I don't give a shit if you went to Harvard or you went to LSU or, well, I do care about LSU, any other place. But what's important is enthusiasm and proactivity. And that is Corinne right there. And that is how she got involved. And I was so happy to have her. So I'm admitting some more people. Okay. So let me talk about first, before we get to the mushy stuff about emotions, I want to talk about lessons. Okay. So there's a couple of basic things that I think everybody should know that make you a much better trial lawyer. And that if you don't do them, I think it hurts you. Okay. So stop me if anybody has any questions. And Dustin, if you have, or Karen, you have some things that you want to add, please. But there's a couple of basic things. One, there is a five mile rule that I use that I tell to my clients, to everyone that within five miles of the courthouse, you have to assume that everybody that is around you is a potential juror. That means don't steal the last parking spot. Don't jaywalk. Don't be on your phone as you go through the metal detector. God forbid is what happened. Don't come watch my trial and go to the bathroom and talk on your phone at a urinal next to a juror. I mean, right? That don't cuss, don't flip people off. All of these things seem to be basic, but you don't realize because your everyday life, you talk on the phone and you cross the street and in front of people and you don't even realize it. So you do have to be vigilant. Second, there is a five second rule that I apply. And that is in your approach to trial and organization and doing the trial, you need to get to where it takes five seconds or less for you to get anything you want. So that came up a number of times in the trial. So for example, if you're cross-examining someone and you then want to cross them with their depot, well, the defense needs a copy, the judge needs a copy, the, the witness needs a copy, right? You need to have either lodged the transcript or have enough copies with the tab so that it's quick, that you have it handled right there and you can access it quickly because the lot, the loss of flow is really important. Well, I'd like to read from uh, page 20 line, whatever. Defense, oh, oh, your honor, I, what, what? And then the judge goes, I, I need a copy of the depot. And you're like, uh, I don't have any extra copy. Like, well, let's, let's go get a copy. Oh, I got it. You go in the back of the courtroom. 
And you're like two minutes in and you're like, God damn it. And I, that's the same with exhibits. The same with trying to um, get stuff into evidence. You need to pre-think about, will I have enough copies? Will I have enough access? Will it be quick enough? Will my electronics work fast enough to try to get it done in five seconds or less? And in this particular case, we were a lot better at it than the defense. And if you all listen to the closing arguments, you know, you heard many times the defense lawyer like stopping and looking back and trying to find information. And those pregnant pauses are painful, right? They're painful. So those are two big rules. But the next one is that you must be respectful of the jury and the judge. You must be. And so basic ideas of thanking the jurors, thanking the judge, thanking the bailiff, thanking the clerk seem basic, but doesn't happen nearly as much as you might think. And a real appreciation for a juror's time means not only standing up when they come in and when they leave every single time, but it also means, sorry, how do I, whenever a phone call happens, it takes my Zoom away. But also understanding that making them wait because you're late to court or you have an issue that you need to raise with the judge, but you don't bring it up until 10 o'clock when the trial is supposed to start and the jury is sitting outside. Those basic understandings of appreciating the people who are committing to their time is really important. So what happened in our case? After the jury went out, right? They said, you can be up to 15 minutes away. Our entire team and our clients were there at the courthouse. When the jury left, when they walked in, they saw us. The defense was nowhere to be found. And what that allowed was that continuation of the cavalier behavior that came through in the defense case. But these are basic things, right? Next, the defense did not have their corporate rep there continuously. He would leave willy-nilly, and then they had a different person that they didn't introduce to the, to the jury. I mean, Mark, you tell me, these are basic things that just defy logic. The cardinal sense. Uh, right? Yep. You always make sure you're out there outside the jury room with your shit on your knee working. Uh, and pretend if you are or you're not, you don't disappear. And you sure as hell have someone there every single moment of the trial. Uh, and they sit there with you. People look at that and it matters. And you know what? I, you know, I, Corinne, I don't know if you noticed this, but when we would go back to the, to in the back, I, when we were leave and come back in the courtroom, I, I deferred and let, and you walked first. Again, that's my Southern upbringing, but sometimes that means something to someone. Carrying your own boxes, sometimes that means something for someone. And then the last thing is, is that jurors misinterpret laughing too much, crying too much, whispering too much, right? 
you may be whispering about how great your case is going and a juror sees that and thinks that you're nervous about how bad it's going. And so you do need to be cognizant of trying to take those things away. And everything that I've said does not require a legal education, but these are critically important things. A couple other things. When I did closing arguments, what did I do, Dustin? I said, take everything off the desk. When I'm doing voir dire, take everything off the desk. Again, because you want to show that you are organized, how you look, how wrinkled or unwrinkled you are, how busy or messy your binders are, how much you have access to exhibits quickly, does make a material difference many times in a, in a trial. And so the first thing I wanna say is in preparation, those are the things that require preparation. Now, I wanna talk about a couple of big issues, okay? Big issue that now comes up in every case is Sanchez. And it was such a big issue and it, it just comes up in every trial that I do wanna go over it again, okay? The Sanchez case, and I know y'all know what it is, but I'm going to talk to you about it again, deals with the use of hearsay by experts. Okay? And it used to be before Sanchez about six years ago, four years ago, maybe, that if you had a designated expert that they could re rely on and review and talk about reliable hearsay. And reliable hearsay was whatever was in the medical records, right? And so before Sanchez, all you needed to do was really designate a doctor and that doctor could recite everything that was in the past records. You didn't need to do anything really to authenticate them. You didn't need to talk to those treaters. You didn't need to do anything. And the defense doctor would be able to do the same thing. And they would say, well, in the, in the hospital at the ER, Dr. So-and-so said this, this, and this, and that means no one's hurt. Sanchez is such a sea change from that, that you must be aware of it. And what it says is, is that doctors now can talk about what they reviewed and relied on, and they can give opinions based generally on what they reviewed and relied on, but they cannot give specifics and relate hearsay, which are past records that they had nothing to do with, unless those records are previously authenticated, usually by the treating doctor being deposed or testifying in court. And unless you get a waiver of counsel of the Sanchez rules, when you go to court and you go, doctor, what did the MRI show? And they looked at a report and they didn't look at the scan. Sanchez would preclude them from saying what the report said. Now they could say, well, based on the report, I believe he had a, um, an injury, but they can't relate it. And in Sanchez, that would require you to take the radiologist's depot if you couldn't get a waiver of Sanchez and either play that at trial 
or bring the radiologist to trial to testify. So we had to have four treating physicians testify by playing their video depots to get in even a little bit of Sanchez. So when we started and we called our expert, our expert uh, ortho, the defense started screaming Sanchez, 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 Sanchez. And I knew how to deal with it. And so I was able to talk about generally you relied on the records and here are your opinions. And then I said to the judge, you know, judge, as you're saying, what's good for the goose is good for the gander. And guess what the defense tried to do in their case in chief? Doctor, tell us. And he would start reading, well, the, the plaintiff had 22 prior physical therapy. Objection, Sanchez. Sustained. Because their doctor could say, based on my review of records, I don't believe such and such was related. But he could not talk about specifics in the records. So you guys need to know Sanchez. And if you've got a trial coming up, you need to with before the time runs for you to be able to take treating doctor depots, you have to raise with the other side whether Sanchez is going to be an issue or not. And good defense lawyers will consider a waiver. Overworked in-house counsel just go no we're not going to agree to anything i don't know what i don't know what you're talking they probably don't even know what sanchez uh, uh, what but that requires you then to get the foundational documents and remember discovery cutoff 30 days before trial you got to notice a depot 15 to 20 to 30 days before if you want those documents you got to serve the doctor and that time runs only after you serve the doctor. Plus you wanna to talk to that doctor before you take his depot so he doesn't kill you or she kill you. So you're talking about if you got a trial date, you gotta be thinking about this stuff three to four months before your trial. This is really important. It is a sea change. I When I started, I told you, I got involved in a trial the night before trial. I did every case I had in my office was less than a month to, before trial. And I didn't really care because I could wing it because my expert could do all my work for me. That is different now. You cannot do that. It's huge. Next. Well, let me ask, does anybody have anything, questions about those issues? It doesn't make trial nearly as much fun anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Anybody got anything to say about that? I, I'm making a big deal about it because if you don't understand these issues, you just. Anybody? Mike. Yeah. Mike, this is Catherine. Um, so for the Sanchez, do you, do you always um, waive that or when you raise it to defense and they're okay with it? I would say if the defense would waive it, I probably 99% would do it simply because um, it just makes the trial go a lot faster and a happy jury usually is a better plaintiff's verdict. And the defense many times 
strategically just wants to slow down the process. So I would step. The only time I really don't agree to step to Sanchez is if there's like a statement, usually at, at the hospital or something where you have no idea who wrote it or how they got the information, but they say something like plaintiff said, oh my God, I wasn't wearing my seatbelt. And if I had, or plaintiff wasn't wearing their seatbelt. And if they had, they wouldn't have been hurt. If you wave Sanchez, their expert relates it. If you don't, they got to find the person who wrote that, depose them and say that information came from the plaintiff as a party admission. So you, you can't just say, I always wave it, but 99% of the time, it's a good thing to wave if you can. But again, you'll never get a defense lawyer to waive that like the day before trial. They think you're trying to slip one by them. So you need to raise this stuff six, seven, eight months before trial. Just as kind of like, hey, uh, let's talk about, you know, I think we're both using PowerPoints and you know, let's, let's, uh, let's do away with Sanchez so we can, you guys can talk about it, we can talk about it, whatever. And a lot of times you're a lot more likely for the lawyer to go, yeah, okay, no problem. And then if it ain't in writing, it doesn't exist. Hey, just confirming. We're going to wave Sanchez. Just send me back an email saying yes, okay, whatever. If it ain't in writing and a response in writing, it does not exist. Period. By the way, applies first and foremost to clients. But I told the client 30 times that the 998 was it. Is it in writing? No. Then you didn't say anything. Period. It is really important. Mike, does, oh. does, that, does that also apply in uh, federal court or just California court? Sanchez? Correct. Whew. I have six. You know what? I don't know that I've tried a federal court case since Sanchez. I've only done about four or five federal court trials. Uh, I, my best guess would be it does not apply because it's a state court evidentiary ruling and you use the federal rules of civil procedure. Mark, do you know? Short answer, I don't know if it applies or not, but I got about five federal court cases all going to trial in the next six months. We've most certainly been taking the position that it's going to apply and we are uh, you know, spending an extra 10 to 20 grand on these cases to get those Sanchez uh, uh, deponents taken care of. <laughs> So we're going to invoke it. And I, I don't want to get sandbagged where all of a sudden the judge goes, yeah, uh, objection sustained. Uh, but to, to, to tag on to your point, Mike, yeah, my, my trial prep lists now, I have to address all the Sanchez issues. And like you said, if there's something that's blurted out to the EMT or the doctor, and we got to take three or four depositions to figure out who actually recorded that, we mm. do it. Uh, and it's it's adding 40000 50000 bucks to the cost of cases. But, you know, if you can't get a resolve, you absolutely need that. You don't want to be the guy that's standing in front of 12 strangers in a box and getting objections to stand and looking like a fool. And that happened with the defense, who clearly didn't really understand Sanchez. They no. thought they were going to pull one on us, and then we turned it on them. And then they're asking all these questions, and there were like four objections to Sanchez sustained in a row. And they're like, uh, moving on. And I'm like, what were the shades of red of the guy's face? Oh, he was he was a beat. He was a beat. 
Um, and in federal court, by the way, in federal court, they many times the judges give you time limits that you have to try your case in X number of hours, right? Let's say they give you 11 hours to try your case. Imagine having to spend some of that time talking to a treating doctor to get foundation on. It's just crazy. All right, Nick, question. Hey, Mike, this is Brian. I have a question. Hey. How you doing, partner? I'm driving to a lake right now, my friend. Right. And uh, But I wouldn't miss this for the world. Hey, so here's a question. So if you've got, um, you're going to bring on a doctor to set up a foundation and you're going you're gonna to use the depot uh, transcript. Do you need to show unavailability of the uh, deponent in order to get that the, the depot? Because normally, you know, you'd have to, you have the option to get so that's a good guy live because he's he's not unavailable. So, so you, yeah. So you're you're cutting out, but let me answer some of those questions. Okay, the rule is is that. For treating doctors, okay, you can take a deposition for the purposes of playing at trial if you give proper notice in the notice of deposition. And the rules actually say, oh, and by the way, that is a great idea, right? We did not have any treating doctors testify live, not only because of COVID, but just because it is now my rule that if I can get a treater by video, most jurors don't care one way or the other. You're much more likely to get a, a doctor to show up once than twice. It's just a good idea. But if you notice the depot of a treater and you say, I'm taking the depot for the purposes of playing a trial, then you, the noticing attorney, are taking that depot. You, the noticing attorney, are paying for that time. And remember, if you ask a treater, an expert, non-retained or retained opinions, the code requires you to pay them their routine hourly rate for expert witnesses, for expert testimony. You don't get to pay a treater $35 witness fee and then ask opinions. You've got to pay that treater their customary rate. But you want to pay your treater the customary rate because you don't want a pissed off treater. But the rule actually says in the code of civil procedure, that when you notice a depot for the purposes of you taking the, the it for trial, the other side has an opportunity to take a depot first for the purposes of discovery so that when you take your depot, they have prepared a cross-examination. I will tell you that that has never happened to me before, but you should know that 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 is an option that a defense lawyer has. Okay. So then when you do a treating doctor's depot for the purposes of trial, you're playing it for trial. So you need to talk about background, credentials, what they reviewed, how many, you know, you got to give foundation and you got to have them like you would do as a direct exam at trial. I find it also very effective because that's the time when the defense has to cross the doctor. And usually they're a lot less prepared to do it in a depot than they are at the time of trial. Okay. So if you do that, Brian, you can play that video at trial. Okay. And the defense can play their snippets in response. But okay. That's good points. Yeah. yeah. But also I'll say in the, I was code, gonna say, so yeah, you want to get that depot. 
Yeah, you do. And but I will say that with COVID, no, the court was also like anybody that you can bring in remotely, bring them in. And since both sides wanted yeah, it, it, we were not worried about unavailability for the doctors. But that is a great segue to unavailability. All right, good. All right. You're cutting in and out. I'm sorry, I can't hear you. No, sorry, good points. I just wanted to emphasize, yeah, get it right on your depot notice. And that works both sides, plaintiff and defense, if you want that foundation for your, your case. So um, for, to, to defeat Sanchez. So right. yeah, good points. So now let's dovetail into, again, unavailability. So there are two types of witnesses that are not experts. There are parties and there are non-parties. They are radically different in how you deal with them. A party is the plaintiffs, individual defendants, or if your defendant is a corporation, officers, managers, supervisors, persons most knowledgeable. And if they're a party, you can make them show up with a notice to appear. You don't have to subpoena them. So how did that come up? We noticed to appear the general manager, the sales manager, the immediate supervisor, and they objected to the immediate supervisor as not high enough to be designated a party. So then you had to subpoena that person. Okay, those are important distinctions. Next, a party deposition, the deposition of a party under 2025 of the Code of Civil Procedure can be used for any purpose. You don't need them to be available. You don't need them to be unavailable. You don't need them to testify. You don't need them to be in court. You can read it, judge willing, and our judge was not super flexible. You can play their video or read their depot at any time and as long as it's not overly cumulative, you can do it multiple times. For example, you get a party, a defendant, if they're a corporation, that one of their, their manager, and they say something stupid, you can read that with every witness and say, well, I just want to remind the so-and-so said, and you read it, is that true? No, they're a liar. Next witness, so-and-so, and you read it, is that true? because you can use a party depot for any purpose, okay? A non-party, you cannot use a deposition of a non-party unless they are proven to be unavailable. And even then you have to get over some hearsay objections, but it's really important if you have a non-party and you can't show that they are unavailable, you can't use their depot. So what happened in our case was the driver was not a party. Right? And so the defendants wanted to use statements of his. But the judge said, well, he's a non-party. Is he available? Well, your honor, we don't know. So unavailability in the code requires certain things be done to show unavailability. And it usually requires ultimately a declaration from a process server that goes through various um, 
bona fide reasons that I went to their house, I waited so-and-so, I did a search for their addresses, that they weren't there for a certain amount of time, et cetera, to satisfy that they are truly unavailable. If they're not living in the state, they're unavailable. If they're in jail, they're unavailable. If they're dead, they're unavailable, okay? But you can't prove that by saying they're dead. The judge goes, says who? You gotta have that, rep, that ready to show unavailability. So that sometimes you're in trial and you're expecting someone to show up because they told you they'd show up, but you haven't subpoenaed them because you didn't need to. And then they don't show up and you go to read their depot and they go, uh, are they unavailable? Oh, well judge, they told me they were gonna show up and they didn't, so what? So these are important issues that you need precatory before you start, notice to appear or subpoenas. Any questions on that? Big, big issues. Mark. What possible statements do the defense think they could get in for the driver who'd invoked his right against self-incrimination? Because at the scene, he did make some statements on video to the police. Oh, okay. And we were able to exclude them. What do you say? Party admissions. I ain't in a party, Judge. Oh, statement against interest. Right? Not He's not unavailable. Uh, and they never were able to show it. So I'll tell you what he said off the record. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. So those are some big issues. Um, last thing that, that I want to talk about was there was sub rosa. Um, who knows if it, how effective it was on one of our plaintiffs, but sub rosa usually there's a question in form rogs. Did you do any surveillance? Most defense lawyers will answer the form rogs, no surveillance, and then send out surveillance right after that. Okay. So most of the time that they disclose sub rosa is when you send supplemental interrogatories right before discovery cutoff. And that's when we found out that they had sub rosa. Okay. It's very important that at the beginning of your trial, if you even suspect sub rosa, that you raise it in court with the judge. And if you don't know one way or the other, a lot of times I'll go, your honor, if there's any sub rosa, any videos, I need to see it all. And then I look at the defense to see if they blink. Right. But you need to make sure that the judge understands that before they make a big show of having video or whatever in front of the judge, in front of the jury that you're objecting to because you haven't seen it yet, you need to have brought that up with the judge that before they even raise it with the jury, we need to have seen all of it so that we know that they didn't take it out of context. And then I go forward and I need reports, I need background, I need the number of hours. And in our case, they were able to get in four or five photos that were clearly taken from video. And then they were able to get in three or four little minute, uh, 30 second videos of, of one of our clients. Well, to get in the video, they had to call their, their investigator. And I crushed him. I'm like, so they're like, 
these videos are not altered or edited in any way, not taken from other videos. No, 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 no. So then my cross was, first of all, they were. So I showed him that these two snippets were taken out of a four minute video. And I said, you just lied to this jury under oath and he agreed. But then I said, well, for a one minute, how many hours were you out there looking? And he said, 40 to 50 hours. I'm like, and you got one minute of video? Where's the other 49 hours and 59 minutes? Oh, I left it at home because no one asked me to bring it. So then I had a lot of, I'm like, well, but you're a trained professional person, uh, investigator that you worked for the win and Disney and your training said, bring everything. So we know you're not cherry picking. That's right. But you chose not to bring it here. Nobody asked me. I'm like, why did somebody have to ask you? And so you get a lot of stuff by setting up that um, they have to authenticate. And um, Corinne and Dustin got tired of me saying this. And it's really, that was a perfect example of gilding the lily. And that's a saying, saying that I, I guess you have to be a certain age to know what that means. So a lily is a beautiful flower, right? And gilding, if you gild something, means you cover it with gold. And the phrase, don't gild the lily, is someone tried to make the beautiful lily even more beautiful by covering it with gold, and then you kill the flower, right? And that is a very common issue in depots and in trials. You get an admission. Yes, I lied under oath. And then you try to gild the lily. And let's just be crystal clear, you lied under oath. And then they go, well, you know, now that I think about it, I really didn't, I didn't lie under oath. And all you were trying to do is to make the point again. Right? And so many times, if you score points, the counterpunch, like they tried to score more points with this sub rosa. It didn't really help them, but it exposed them to a pretty serious counterpunch. And these are all trial strategy issues that you're going to have to deal with throughout your trial career. All right, so let me stop there, ask any more questions. We got about 15 more minutes, and um, I have a couple of things to talk about, about how we deal with stuff. But I am always open to talk about this ad nauseum. Right. If you guys want to reach out to me at any other time, talk to me, you know, uh, Corinne, you got two minutes to tell us what you thought. And then we're going to talk about feelings. Okay. Awesome. Thank you so much. And I, you know, I know Mike that I've said this many, many times, but I cannot say it enough. And I'm going to say it here too. Thank you. Thank you so much. It was beyond an honor, a blessing, a privilege that I got to be able to be on this trial with you. No, I'm serious. I have to do that. I appreciate it. No, no. To be able to see you in action, to work with you. It was just an experience on another level. And um, it's an invaluable experience that there's, there's just no substitute for it. And for all of us who are all very, you know, passionate about our careers and what we do, this was the experience of a, of a lifetime. So thank you, Mike, so much. I would have never known because I was really afraid of trials before. This was my first jury trial. I would have never known that I could direct examine a plaintiff if it wasn't for 
you know, being encouraged to actually do it and get to do it. So thank you so much. And everything I learned was just invaluable. Couldn't have asked for a better mentor, friend, experience, everything. And um, I, I want to say something that, um, you, first of all, thank you. You didn't have to say that. But, but trials, the only thing to expect in trial is the unexpected. So Corinne's very first witness was the plaintiff, the female plaintiff. She goes through direct, does an excellent job, and then they show sub Rosa while on direct. And Corinne's like, what's going on? <laughs> yeah. And then our client has a panic attack on the stand. And Corinne's first witness, she had to deal with all of that. <laughs> so, so that was the next thing I wanted to get to was, you know, back in the day, you know, when I, I first started as, as, you know, practicing and I would go to Cala every year and I would hear Mike speak at the seminars, he would always say, always expect the unexpected. And this trial was that in every single way. Every single day, we got thrown something at us that was major, completely unexpected. And I think the big thing there was to watch how Mike handled it and diffused it and handled it with such grace and, and did not let anything get to him. And even when I was like dying inside, he was able, he, he guided me and he helped me diffuse the situation and something that seemed like an atomic bomb turned out to be okay in the end. And it's really about how you respond to those situations in the moment when you're not thinking and when you really are coming from a place of emotion. And, uh, so that was huge. And you know, the Navy SEALs have a saying that under stress, you go down to the level of your training. And that's one of the reasons they say they train so hard. And it's one of the reasons why I keep repeating the same shit over and over, right? Because when we start to get stressed and your heartbeat goes up, you don't remember anything except for what you were trained. And that's why you go over it again and again. And that's why many times these very basic things about organization and five second rule and how you dress and being prepared before you start trial is so when they put pressure on you, you don't have to think about it. You don't have to figure it out because you've already dealt with it. And many times those are the pressure points that separate whether a jury thinks it's a big deal or not, right? If they look at the lawyer and the lawyer is like cool as a cucumber, they're like, well, it must not be a big deal. If you're sweating like a, you know, a horse, they're like, oh my God, something bad just happened. Okay, so um, thank you, Corinne. And I just want to now just spend a few more minutes and then I've got something I'm going to talk about that some of y'all might really like. Um, how do you deal with this? Hey, Mike, didn't you ask for more money? A lot more money? So I guess the jury didn't like you. They didn't like your clients. Oh, but you got $3.7 million. Oh, but I wanted more. Yeah, but they were offering less. Ah, but the lawyers were unethical cheaters. They got away with this. God damn it. Oh, man, I really wanted to get a better verdict because I wanted to look better. Yeah, but is it really about the lawyer? It's about the clients. And the clients were crying with happiness. All of these issues will come up with you guys. Every trial, right? 
what I wanted to use this as is a learning experience. You know, I, I laid on the couch last night eating ice cream and watching freaking bring the Nets game. Not because I was depressed or happy, it was just because these are emotions that run through you that just happen, right? The adrenaline, the, the emotional drain. I talked to Dustin, I'm like, junior wife celebrating. He's like, we were really happy, but we couldn't get out of bed. And that happens. And when you're in trial, you're stressed the entire day. And at the end of the day, you are sore as a son of a bitch. Every day, you're exhausted mentally, physically. But here are some of the lessons I just wanted to talk about that, that I have dealt with and learned right or wrong and how I deal with it. First and foremost, the facts are the facts. You cannot cheat yourself. And the verdict was $1.73 million and we had X amount before. It wasn't any less. It wasn't any more. And that is what a fair jury determined was the value of this case, period. Trying to explain what you should have done, could have done better or worse in many respects other than trying to learn is irrelevant, okay? And so now with those facts, how you perceive those facts and how you interpret those facts, perspective is the only thing that will affect how you live your life, okay? So now I can look at this and say, I failed because I asked for more than we got. Still have the same number. I succeeded because my clients got enough money to live their lives. Same facts. I didn't convince this jury that these lawyers are cheating scumbags. They should be disbarred. And I wanted that to be well known. Same facts. Well, my clients got compensated and these lawyers didn't get disbarred, so their families are going to be okay, and that law firm's going to be okay, and the lawyers that didn't have anything to do with this won't be hurt. So maybe that's not a terrible thing. Same facts. And so if nothing else, I want you to understand that perspective is everything. And of course, I'm not saying don't learn from mistakes, don't tweak trial and error, right? Like, well, you should have been guaranteed a higher word. I mean, why don't they call it trial? <laughs> it's called trial because you're not sure what happens. That's why trial and error. If there was never an error from trial, there'd never be a phrase trial and error. But the second thing is, is that understand that we are all here as a career. Probably no one on this call is going to, well, maybe somebody, but I'm waiting to get my big verdict and then I'm out and I'm going to go move to uh, Tahiti and be on the beach for the rest of my life. Most people are not, don't think that. And if they do, if they do get that money, they're on Tahiti for about a week and they're like, God damn it, I want to get back to the office. So everything that you do is part of a continuum and the consistent routine behavior you know, I don't know if you saw my post this morning. I was at the working out this morning. 
not because that's great or whatever, but whether I won this case or lost this case, whether it was a big number or a small number, whether I was happy or sad, I know that consistent routine behavior over time is what's going to be the most successful thing for my career, for my family, for my mental health, for my physical health. And we talk about working hard, but I change it and I talk about hard work. And an example of hard work is getting up when you feel like shit and working out or going to the next trial or really thinking about what happened and accepting the good, the bad, the pretty, the ugly, and understanding that you're not gonna cheat yourself. And so I know those are platitudes, I get it. Everybody's like, well, you know, Mike, sounds like you pretty, you're pretty good at making excuses to feel good about yourself. I don't care if you feel that way because I know that's not 100% accurate. Maybe some of it is. But I think if you guys do this and you approach this over a long period of time, it will immensely contribute to your success. Right? And so I end by saying that I start trial again on Wednesday of next week in San Bernardino. And I was so happy with the experience of having Corinne that I will accept emails from people who would wanna be co-counsel with me to try this case next Wednesday in San Bernardino, okay? Corinne, you're excluded because you were one for <laughs> I would love to have you again. That's, that's but if <laughs> So the trial is in San Bernardino. We're gonna try the case Wednesday, Thursday. We may be dark on, we're dark on Friday. We may be dark on Monday, but then we'll be in trial only a couple of days the next the next week. And then we'll be done. So we start next Wednesday. We'll be done by the following Wednesday, maybe the following Thursday. If anyone would like to be co-counsel and be sit and get in the courtroom and duke it out with me and Mansoor in our office, email me separately. Okay. It's not a, you know, <laughs> I'm already getting a bunch of them. <laughs> and if you don't get it, believe me, I will. I, and I, you know, I was thinking about this and if I'm able to, I will continue to offer this to different people for every trial I do. I think it's just, it is such a good experience to just to see the ins and outs and to feel the feelings, to deal with those feelings and those stress points that it is such an invaluable experience that was given to me that I'd like to give it to, to anyone else. All right. So we got one more minute. Anybody got anything they want to say? Um, hey, Mike, I got a, a couple things. Yeah, um, this is right. Um, one, uh, I, I, I hope you know the difference that you truly make in our lives. Just something simple. This morning, I didn't want to get up. And I saw your video of you working out. And so I got my butt up and started working out. So because I saw that, but also too, just something a little bit more lighthearted. Um, first time going to Cal Vegas, does it, do people tend to go home on Sunday, Monday? What should I be planning for? 
it's going to be a little different because of uh, they're doing the, the instead of the Saturday night party because of COVID, there's only going to be one party, which is Friday night, which, by the way, Alder Law is sponsoring at Raider Stadium. Oh, I don't know if I can say that yet, but uh, <laughs> luckily no one watches these goddamn shows. No, I'm just kidding. Um, I'm going to put it on Facebook. <laughs> thanks, Mike. Um, AJ, <laughs> you're going to put it all over uh, so I will say that probably about 30% of people leave on Saturday night on, in other years, but they stay because there's a Saturday party. There's not a Saturday party. So, I mean, just logistically, probably a fair number of people are going to leave on Saturday afternoon, evening. And I think the, um, the booths, they start tearing them down Saturday afternoon. So, there's still speeches, including, I think, the master speech. But most of the good stuff, including my speech, is before Saturday afternoon. So I, a lot of people will leave. I don't know if that answers your question. But look me up, by the way, because we're going to be in full force partying big time. All right. Anybody? Oh, Kelly Hanker, just give you a shout out. She just got an amazing... Uh, verdict along with some people in, in Indiana. So great job, Kelly. Wonderful. Great to hear. And Thank she, you. She was saying some things about how they use treating doctor depots in their trial and uh, multi-million was six, seven, five, six, seven, eight million dollar verdict. Just amazing. Great job. Thank you. Um, okay, guys. Happy Father's Day, Mike. We'll see you guys in a couple of weeks and I will look for the avalanche of texts and emails that I'm about to get. Love y'all. See you later. Bye everyone. Good Bye. luck. Bye. Bye.